0: Well, hey, good morning to you. Are you guys doing well? Yeah, Yeah, thank you for coming out. I know it's rainy, and... And uh, you know, it's one of those things where I'm looking at it going, man, it's going to be a light day, but you still made it. So thank you for that. Um, I want to start out today. My name is Kevin Valentine, by the way, if you're here visiting us or you're, or you're newer, I'm the lead pastor here. Um, and there's something about us that I want you to know, and that is that we are not just about what happens here on Sunday morning. When we started this church um, seven and a half years ago, we actually wanted to make an impact in the community around here. We wanted the community to be different because we showed up. And uh, so one of the ways we do that is once a year we have what is called our spring serve and we do these regularly throughout the year but we invite the whole church out to get out of here and make a difference in some of the families in this area that are in need. And so in March our student ministries actually went and painted a house um, on uh, on uh, Avalon Road um, where they spent, uh, spent three days of their spring break. They gave up their spring break to volunteer and redo um, an elderly person's house who wasn't able to do it himself and they just gave up their spring break for them. And then uh, not only did they do it as teenagers, but two weekends ago, we had three projects going on around the area. Um, One was a food pantry that we went um, down into Kissimmee and just helped them build some new storage shelves and sort some things because they're helping um, the people in need down there. Another one was a a woman that we actually found in Pine Hills that still had debris from the hurricane back in October. Um, She had nobody to come and help her dig her yard out and take care of all that stuff. And so we had a crew go there and just dig out trees and weeds and and, uh, branches um, for for the morning. And then we had another crew go to a home in East Winter Garden and help fix that up and paint that for for a family. Yes, I know exactly right. And I would just love for us to just give everybody a hand. You guys did it. Let's say way to go. And I also want to say this, when opportunities come up, for you as part of our church, to get out of these four walls on a Sunday morning and and give some of your time away to the community that 's how we can make a difference in people 's lives and maybe it might, it might seem small to you, but to them it is massive in such a way where we can just say why are we why are we doing this because Jesus loves you, and therefore we do too um, and it really does have impact now, as we get into the day, um, we are in week one of a four week series called defining moments where we 're taking a look at the moments in our lives where we look back, because you rarely understand it's, that it's happening in the moment, but we look back and we realize that that moment that happened actually was a defining moment. Some of them are things that happen to us. Other things, other of them are decisions that we've made, but they all work together that literally alter the trajectory of our life. So today's title is Failure Is Not Final. And so uh, just so we can all kind of feel a little better about ourselves, I want you to um, just raise your hand if you have ever made a mistake in your life. Real high. Raise your hand if you've ever made a mistake. Okay, good. Most of you are not lying. And I want you to turn to the person next to you. Just tell them what your latest mistake was. Go ahead. Do it. I'm just kidding. Don't do it. Okay, that's a little weird. Especially if you don't know them. You're like, oh, yeah, I, don't, I don't know about this. All right, but here's the reality. Um, we all make mistakes, and that's not rocket science. I know all of you are kind of going, dumb. But I will just say this, rarely are your mistakes and my mistakes as public as the mistake that you're about to witness. Um, uh, I don't know if you saw this live, I heard about it three years ago, and I didn't see it until this week. And literally my jaw was on the floor. Once I saw it, it, I believe it's one of the most uncomfortable Awful and hilarious moments ever on live TV because the mistake that's on this, what you're about to see, literally is universe wide. It's a universe wide mistake. I don't know if you remember three years ago, Steve Harvey actually gave the crown of Miss Universe to the wrong contestant on live TV and then had to go and retract it on live TV. And so I want to play this mistake he made, this failure of his for you. And this is what I want you to watch because it's hilarious. You need to watch his face when he comes back out to make the change. Let's watch this together. Miss Universe 2015 is... folks uh, th- there's I have to
1: apologize
0: <laughs> the first
1: runner-up is Colombia.
0: is that, right? It's like, did you see Miss Columbia? She's like, I'm not taking this crown off of me. Like somebody can have to come take this thing from me. But do you realize, so you didn't see this because we didn't let it go, it was four minutes between when they announced Columbia and had to take it back away from her. Four minutes went down, and and to his credit, Steve Harvey said in an interview that he said it was four minutes of hell. Like he knew as soon as he walked off stage, and the producers actually wanted to wait until the next day to fix it. And Steve Harvey was just like we're fixing it right now. And he went back out and just bit the bullet. And I'm telling you, man, that is some, I don't know if when I watched it this last week for the first time, I was laughing. I'm like, look at his face. Ha ha ha. And then when I see those two women, I'm like, my bread, blood pressure started rising. It's like, what an awful moment. You know, it's like poor Miss Columbia. Well, here's the reality of that moment. Um, For many people involved, if you read the fallout from it, it was a defining moment for a lot of people, including Steve Harvey. Now for that one, It was literally a universal. Uh, a universal defining moment, like the whole world knew what had happened. Um, You know, but but the reality is, is that every one of us, we have a story of failure. For some of us, it's literally a minor story of failure that you laugh about. Afterwards, just yesterday, my second son, Travis, he had a Pop Warner football banquet at 6.30, and we didn't realize it was at 6.30. We thought it was at 7, so 5.30. I pull up my uh, my little app there and my email, and I realize, oh my gosh, it's at 6.30, so like we get, we quick get dress, we dress all up, we get everything all set, I rush him out of the house, we drive to the Disney Yacht Club where the, where the banquet's at, and we drive up to the little thing, um, you know, in the rain and everything, we drive up to the little booth, and the guy walks out, and I'm like, hey, we're here for the Pop Warner banquet, and he goes, what's that? I'm like, well, it's a, it's a football banquet, you know, and he's like, Know we had one of those. I'm like, it's here. It's like at the Disney Yacht Club. And he goes, I said, don't you have other people that have been coming because we're a little late? And he goes, Well, let me go check. And he walks into the little booth and comes back. He's like, It's not here. I realize I'm at the wrong hotel and this thing's already started. So I get out my phone. I'm like, Well, let me find out where it is. And as I'm scrolling, I start reading the email that I got and I realize that. I'm at the right place. It's next Saturday. We're in there the wrong weekend. And Travis is sitting there next to me and his eyes are bugging out of his head. And he goes, Really, Dad? Really? Really, Dad? You did that? I'm like, I'm such a moron. And I'm like, Well, it was nice spending an hour with you, son, like in the car. It was so bad that night. It's like 10 o'clock at night. And my older son, he's 16 years old, he goes, Dad, I can't believe you blew that that bad. You blew Travis's whole banquet. I'm like, we dressed up in everything. Like, I hate dressing up, you know? Um, But here's the reality. Some of our mistakes, they're just kind of like that. Like they're, they're they're failures, we laugh about them. But there's other of our failures that are are defining moments. And in other words, they're major life events. And you look back on them and you realize that that that's not a laughing matter. As if you get fired from a job or you get you get caught red-handed just lying to your spouse, that's a defining moment in your marriage. Or you have an investment decision that that literally goes south and you lose you know three quarters or all of your life savings. Or or you get in an argument and what. What's said in the argument as you lose your temper is so um, destructive that it does irreparable damage or, or you have a moral failure or your marriage is falling apart or you breach trust with someone so much that there's permanent relational fallout or you go back to that website that you promised yourself and other people that you would never go back to or you have a string of bad decisions that just lead down this path of failure. No no matter who you are, you have minor failures that that you laugh at, but it's an inseparable part of being human is the kind of failures that are definitive in your life, and how we handle them is the difference between our failures being our past and then becoming our current roadblocks. How we handle our failures... It's the difference between our past failures becoming our current roadblocks or us actually growing through them. Because if we're not careful when it comes to our failures, they actually begin to define us. I don't know if you know that. Um, you have an enemy. His name is Satan. And one of the things that he loves to do with our failures is to keep us from seeing the greatness that God sees in us. And he uses our failures oftentimes to do that. And so the way we're going to kind of go about talking about failures in these defining moments is we're going to look at the life of a guy named Peter. And many of you might have heard of him. um, But we're going to kind of talk about one of the um, greatest failures of his life that became a defining moment, but not the kind of defining moment that you're thinking of. And before we get into that, I just want to pray for us, that God would speak to each one of us, because I believe he's got something important for you, and that's why you're here today. So would you close your eyes with me? Um, Jesus, I thank you that um, your word gives us not just your insights and wisdom, but gives us stories to learn from, stories of, of people that are just like us, um, that, that, that make decisions just like we do sometimes. And God, I just pray that, that, that right now you would allow us to just drop whatever defenses we have put in place um, between our heart and yours. Um, Lord, I pray that right now you would, you would um, allow us to hear you with our souls, hear you with our hearts, hear you with our minds. And God, I pray that you would speak loud and clear to each and every one of us exactly what we need to hear this morning. Um, and God, as you do that, I just want to thank you in advance for the life change that's going to come out of opening your word and talking about, about Peter and his story of failure. In your holy name, amen. So let me um, give you a quick synopsis of Peter's background. Uh, Peter's a fisherman in Galilee until uh, Jesus shows up and says, hey, come come with me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And Peter actually becomes the lead disciple. He's like the, the most famous of the disciples. He had three incredible years with Jesus while Jesus started his ministry. And Jesus told Peter, Peter, you're going to live a long life of, of, of fishing for people and you're going to make a difference for my kingdom. So Peter believes that. Peter walks on water. If you guys remember the story, he gets out of the boat, walks on water. Um, He's the first to state publicly that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. Um, He actually saw Jesus transfigured on a mountain into his glorified self as the son of God. He had a front row seat to the power of Jesus. Like he saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And he also was able to perform miracle after miracle after miracle in Jesus' name. And he is like on the fast track to becoming the most famous disciple of all time until we get to the night that Jesus is betrayed, arrested, beaten, and the next day crucified. They're having this um, meal together, all the disciples and Jesus in Jerusalem called the Last Supper, when Jesus predicts his own death, and he also predicts um, Peter's biggest failure of his life. He tells Peter, Peter, you're about to fail. And this is how he does it in Matthew 26, verse 31. He said, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And then Peter replied, because he was pretty brash, pretty outspoken. He says, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Peter is so bold, probably a little bit arrogant. He goes, goes, Jesus, even if all these other losers fall away, I'm not gonna, I'm your guy. I'm with you till the end. So he's speaking up in this moment. Well, Jesus responds to Peter and he says, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows three times, you, Peter, will disown me three times. But Peter, he's not backing down. He actually doubles down in this moment. He says, he declared, he's like, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And then it says, and all the other disciples said the same. And here's why this becomes such a huge failure. It's because Peter not only is looking in Jesus' eyes and making a promise. I'll never disown you, but he does it publicly. Did you catch the last line where it says, and all the other disciples were like, yeah, us too, right? They're like, we're never going to do that either. Peter publicly says, Jesus, even if I have to die, I'm with you till the end. Well, here's what happens that night. you know the story. It's the Easter story. Jesus actually takes the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray um, the night that he is betrayed by Judas and arrested. And um, one of the things that really stood out to me and impacted me a ton when I was in Israel last month, I had the opportunity to go there, um, is, is the things that I got to see where these stories happen. In other words, it's changed how I read the Bible. Like how I read the Bible now is I see what's happening as I read, not just imagining. So what's interesting when you get there, is we went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We went to where this story takes place, where Jesus had taken the disciples. And what's really interesting about the Garden of Gethsemane, in my mind, I always thought when Jesus took the disciples that, you know, it was a few miles away and it was off somewhere in this garden, right? It's like there's wooded area and stuff. And what you find when you're actually there is you've got the city of Jerusalem and you've got the the the, the city walls. Here's the temple mount where you see the Dome of the Rock right now, but that's where the temple used to be. And there's this gate. You go down down this hill, and the Garden of Gethsemane is at the bottom of this hill. It's like a 15-minute walk down this hill, which as you're standing there and you're seeing it, when Jesus says to his disciples, because they fall asleep, when he says to them, hey, you know, he wakes them up and he says, he says, wake up, my betrayer is is coming. Jesus actually, and I want to show you a picture of this because it's really astounding. I didn't realize this. Go ahead and put the picture up. So this picture is you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and see those two arches? That's the actual gate into the city from that time period. So when Jesus woke up his disciples and said, look, my betrayer is coming, do you realize he watched them with torches and lanterns walk down the hill? It's that close. I had no idea that things were this close in Scripture. And so I'm sitting there and going, oh my gosh, it's right outside the city gates. You can see how it happened. Well, then right after that, um, they, they, the Judas comes in to the garden. And Peter... You know, big, uh, big, strong, uh, brash Peter actually takes a sword, cuts off one of the guard's ears because he's going to fight for Jesus because he, he, he realized that Judas has betrayed him. Jesus says, Peter, stand down. Jesus heals the guard's ear. And then they take Jesus in captivity up these actual steps. This is the other stuff. I had no idea this was all there. You can go to the next picture. Those are actually the steps. If, if the if the city is here, the garden's here, you walk down the, down the wall here, and then there's steps leading up to Caiaphas's house, which is where they took Jesus next. And so Jesus was actually brought up those steps, those are the actual steps from that time period, up the steps to Caiaphas' house, which is where um, uh, Jesus, uh, Peter actually does exactly what he said he would never do. And this is what happened in Matthew 26, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with, Na- with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Because he was actually from a, a town that was over 100 miles away. And then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken, and before, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And what we find in this story is that a middle school girl takes down the greatest disciple and it wasn't just a simple denial. At first, he just like knee-jerk reaction. Oh, you know him? No, I don't. No, I don't. You know, maybe you and I would have done that. But they come to him again. Are you sure? Because it really, I think you were with him. And he he swears. He's like, I swear to you, I don't know the guy. And they they challenge him again, and he actually starts swearing and calling down curses on his on, on himself, proving that he doesn't know. Jesus, and in the Gospel of Matthew it says that in that moment the rooster crows, and Jesus and Peter actually lock eyes. Now think about that moment for a second. Jesus is in the greatest need of his life, and his top disciple, his very best friend just denies even knowing him within eyesight and earshot of him. And what Peter does, He runs out of the courtyard, falls to his knees, and weeps bitterly. And I don't know if you've ever been there with a failure that you've had where you've been been knocked to your knees weeping. But that's Peter. In the greatest time of Jesus' need, Peter literally abandons Jesus, and that becomes a defining moment. And it was such a monumental failure that it has potential to impact Peter the rest of the rest of his life? Because that's the question we ask in times like this. Does this moment overshadow the rest of his life? Does this moment become a defining moment that he never gets over? Because that's the tendency of defining moments. They're vulnerable moments. And this is where I believe Satan's game plan comes into, into full force. And, and I, you know, Scripture is so clear. If I were to be able to peel back the veil of reality and show you the spiritual world right now, There is a literal battle going on for your soul and your mind in the spiritual and the heavenly realms. And I believe that failure is one of Satan's largest weapons because he tries to take that vulnerability in the midst of our failure and he attempts to to define us by them. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but when you fail, the tendency is for it to change your identity into the failure. Uh, Satan wants to change your thinking from I failed to I am a failure. There's a huge difference in thinking that way. He wants to change your thinking from I made a mistake to I am. mistake. He wants to change your identity from I cheated on a test and that was a bad decision to I am a cheater. Um, In scripture, Satan has many names and one of his names, if you go all King James on it, it is the accuser of the brethren. That's the way the King James puts it. He's the accuser of the brethren and that is what happens when when it comes to our failures. It becomes a battle for our identity. And I don't know if you know this, but you know you're constantly talking to yourself all the time. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you constantly have a running conversation going on with yourself um, with pretty much everything that you do. And this is where Satan kind of gets in and meddles with us in our failures. And his his arguments have a familiar tone. It's accusation pointed towards identity. And Satan's voice sounds like this in your head. It's not you failed, it's you are a failure. You will never reach your potential, why even try? You ever heard that? You can't even do the little things right. You will never amount to anything. You're a terrible mom. You're an angry dad. You're a terrible Christian making a difference for people who really love Jesus. Not you, Even God won't forgive you for this. God will never take you back. You are such a screw-up. You aren't worthy. Don't even go to church. It won't make any difference. No one can count on you. You don't measure up. Not even God could love you after this. Have you ever heard that voice in your head when you failed? And I will just tell you, I've heard just about every single one of those when I failed. And I'll just tell you this it is not the voice of Jesus. It's not God's voice when you hear that accusation. But Peter, he hears that voice loud and clear. And it becomes a flat out battle for his identity. And that voice almost wins, it almost knocks Peter completely out of ministry to the point where Peter is devastated, Um, Jesus is crucified. Peter did nothing to stop it. He hid. He ran. He denied even knowing him. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Peter actually runs to see the empty tomb. And then he meets Jesus in the upper room. Jesus just shows up in the upper room with all the disciples, and all the disciples know what happened. Can you imagine how awkward that moment must have been? Like, I'm like, I could just see Peter going, oh, hey, hey, Jesus, woo, J.C. in the hose. You know, it's like, I'm sure it's just this awkward moment of just going, hey, I was I'm just kidding, right? I mean, I'm joking, I, I fooled you, fooled you, ha ha, you know, I'm pretty good at this. And I can just see how awkward that moment is and what you find in scripture is you would think that Peter would go, oh my gosh, you're back. I can't believe it. Let's get back to business. Let's do what we started out to do. You would think that he would kind of reinvigorate his faith and his mission, But what you find is that failure had worked its way completely into his identity. Now, how do we know that? Because the next time we see Peter in Scripture, he's back fishing. This is after talking to Jesus, seeing the resurrected Jesus. He's back to living his old life. John 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter... Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together, a whole group of them. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, you need to realize those three verses are so important. Why? Because here's what scholars believe is happening. Is Peter going out to fish because he's hungry, Or is he going back to his old life? Peter and his friends walked 100 plus miles back to Galilee. And they revert back to what they were doing before Jesus showed up. And I don't know if you noticed this, but when you read the story... um, They really suck at fishing. They're terrible. Like, they never catch anything. Like, this is just one of those moments. Every time you read about Peter fishing in the Bible, he catches zero things until Jesus shows up. But here's what I believe is happening with Peter. I believe his failure is so devastating and so heartbreaking that he disqualified himself from ministry. I think he took himself out of the game. I think he just said, I am unfit for this. I am unable for this. I am not qualified for this anymore. And he pulls himself out of ministry and goes back to what he knows. He goes back to being what he was, which was a fisherman. And all that to say, there are some of us that that have failures that are so great that rather than live our lives facing forward, looking ahead at what God has for us, the mission and the calling that he has for us, we actually, rather than moving facing forward, we actually move forward in our life facing backwards because that failure, that thing that I did, that thing that is now defining me, that's who I am. And we can actually live our lives moving forward but facing backwards because we have allowed our past failure to become our current roadblock. See, Peter is now a denier of the truth. He's a denier of Jesus. He looked at Jesus in the eyes and and denied him in front of everybody. It was as public of a failure as you could have from one of the guys that had a front, front row seat to who Jesus was. In his past failure, had become his current roadblock to the point where he pulled himself out of ministry, which gets me to our first truth about failure when it comes to God. And you just need to hear this today. This next sentence is why some of you are in this room today, and you're wondering why did we come in out of the rain to come to church? This is why. It's because of this truth. There's You're going to hear this a lot of times, by the way, if you come to church here for any amount of time. But it's just there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Not a single thing you can do to make God love you less than he already does. You will never do anything in your life that will diminish his love that he has for you no matter how badly you've blown it, no matter how many people you've hurt, no matter how many poor decisions you've made that have led down roads that you never dreamed you'd go on in your life. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less than he already does. And what I love about Peter's story is Jesus will never stop pursuing you. No matter how far you run from him, he's always pursuing. He he reveals it in Peter's story. There's this moment where, where Peter finds himself having to confront his failure face-to-face, eye-to-eye with Jesus. And this is, this is how it happens. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to Peter's failure. They fish all night. They catch nothing. And then uh, Jesus in the morning shows up on the shore. And he yells out to them. And they don't know it's Jesus. That He yells out. And he says, hey, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And these guys always listen to people. They don't know who they are. I don't know why. They must be so bad that they're like, we'll try anything. So they pull up their nets. They throw them on the other side of the boat. And the net fills up with so many fish they can't hold it anymore. And this is what I love about Peter. In that moment somehow they realize it's Jesus on the shore. And Peter gathers up his clothing and he dives off the boat and swims to shore. He wants to get to Jesus so badly in that moment. And this is where I think Peter, you can just get a glimpse into a little bit of how much he really wanted to make things right with God because many of us, when we fail, we go the opposite way of God. Peter actually, after disqualifying himself from, from ministry, going back to his old way of life, he actually jumps out of the boat goes to Jesus, and Jesus cooks them all breakfast, and then we have this famous interaction. In John 21, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and why why his name is Simon Peter is because when Jesus met Peter, his name was Simon And Jesus actually changed his name, which was an identity play. Jesus says, you were Simon, now you're Peter, and I'm going to build my church through your work, and I'm going to use you for that. So there's an identity shift there. Well, Jesus shows up, and he says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, and take care of my sheep. And then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John. And it's so interesting that he addresses him as that. What is he addressing him with? His old name, his old identity. He's addressing his old identity again, and he's using his full name. It's like, it's like when your mom and my mom used to say, Kevin Palmer Valentine, you know you're in trouble. It's serious. You better listen. That's what Jesus is doing, Simon. Son of John, referring back to his old identity three times. Do you love me? And then look at the way the verse changes. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And if you want to know who our God is, this is our God. You notice what Jesus doesn't do? Jesus doesn't sit Peter down and go, okay, Peter, let's talk about what happened. You explain to me. Talk to me. You, you fill me in on why you would do that to me in my greatest time. And Jesus doesn't even do that. He doesn't even go there. What does he do? Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I do. And I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him, one for each denial. And then at the same time, as Peter says, I love you, he reminds him of the greatness that he sees in him. Feed my sheep. Take care of my people. He's reaffirming the relationship. He's reaffirming Peter's calling to leading people to Jesus. And this is so powerful. What is Jesus doing? He is reorienting his identity from denier of Jesus living his life this way, back to disciple of Jesus with a mission and a vision that is worth his entire life. That's what Jesus is doing in that moment. Why? Because God will never allow a failure of yours to ever define you. He will not allow it. Rather than allow that failure to to define Peter, what does he do? He pursues him. Then not only does he pursue him to build the relationship back, he reinstates him. And what we find is that that is one of the defining moments of Peter's life. The failure isn't the defining moment anymore. The defining moment is that moment on the beach. Where Peter realizes that there's nothing that he could do that would ever make Jesus love him any less than he already did. It's, it's like he, 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 he got to experience this verse in Romans, Romans 8.38, where it just, the apostle Paul writes and he says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. This is to you and to me. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And try and find something that you've ever done that fits outside of this definition of this list. There's nothing you can ever do to separate yourself from the love of God. And what's interesting is Peter never looks back after this moment. He goes on and he literally changes the world. And he ends up unbelievably giving up his life for the sake of Christ. Just like he said he would do. In fact, he was crucified in Rome because he wouldn't deny Jesus Christ. And he was crucified upside down because he said, I am not worthy of being crucified like Jesus was. And here's what's really incredible about this story is it's a great story about what happened 2,000 years ago, but it's a story that continually is repeated and told over and over again because it still happens today. People are still redeemed. People's identities are still changed from their past failures to a future um, glory that God has for them. And so I want to show you a video of a guy um, who's a friend of mine. His name is Jim Mays. I've known him for a number of years. He's actually on staff at Kensington in Michigan, and he was instrumental in our transition over the last six months from being, uh, you know, a campus of Kensington, transitioning into our own 501C3 and becoming a network church of Kensington. And I don't tell you, I've known him for a lot of years, and I didn't know this about his life until I saw this video. When he first came to Kensington many, many years ago, um, he was a broken person who didn't want anything to do with God. And God grabbed a hold of him and transformed his life. And so I want you to watch this video. And while we um, do the video, uh, while you watch it, we're going to receive our offering. For those of you that that are visiting, let the basket go by. This service is our gift to you. We're glad you're here. For those of you that call Kensington home, this is where we give back to God from what he's blessed us with. And while we're receiving that, while we're watching this video, this story of Jim Mays, I want you to be looking for the redemption in his story because there's a few key phrases I want to pull out of it.
1: I was instantly obsessed. It's exhilarating. It was so cool because you're combining you know, blades on ice, slippery, with a hard puck that can hurt you. And just, a, It's almost like a survival kind of competitive thing, and I'm highly competitive. When I'm out there on the ice, everything goes away. It's like a release for me. And uh, no matter what's going on, I just don't think about anything, but where's the puck? And, Who's coming after me that's exactly what i was doing the rest of my life is i saw people achieve i saw people professionally financially get to places and and i said i want to do that same thing 15 years ago i had tasted success uh, financial success if you will and that became the most important thing to me by far went to bed thinking about it and i woke up in the morning thinking about it is like, how can I keep advancing in my professional career? How can I make more money? How can I get more stuff? I entered the world of building residential homes and then starting the finance company and the mortgage company. I was making a lot of money. I had, you know, I was building a big house. i just got married, had toys, and I started to accumulate things. I had a boat, Uh, cars became a big thing for me very early, and bought a house on the lake, on the water, and it was uh, 5,500 square feet. I just remember thinking, but boy, if I could just push this wall out or make this room bigger or improve the lake front and do all the stuff, then it would be, then I'm there. In about 2002, we ran into some trouble, um, uh, some legal trouble with our finance company, uh, and I wound up in court, uh, in and out of court for a, over a year. The mortgage company had to file bankruptcy, and suddenly that's gone. So now I have financial problems myself, which uh, forced me to file personal bankruptcy. I lost the house to foreclosure, um, couldn't pay the bills. Um, I had a couple cars I couldn't afford. It certainly impacted my marriage, and, and at uh, ten years of marriage, almost, um, I ended up getting a divorce. I just remember crying and walking and saying, "What is going on? Like, how can this happen to me?" I had I had everything under control. I had. Everything was lined up the way that I saw it, it should be lined up, and it just was crumbling. I kept feeling like, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I knew, uh, I believed that there was a God, and so I started to feel in these really dark days like maybe, maybe I need to start rethinking that. And so finally, one day, I had gone to see the girls, and I, I you know, these are my my babies, and I could see in their eyes like, why is Daddy leaving? I remember standing there and it was a cold night and I just I just looked up and I just said I'm done I just said I can't do it anymore And I just f- literally fell to my knees And I just said Whatever it is you need me to do I'll do it I just felt this this wave of like a different feeling than I think I'd ever experienced in my life. I felt like God was real for the first time in my life. The pain's still there. It's not like it immediately goes away. That's not it's, it's not the truth. But the difference is that in the pain, there's someone else you're talking to, and it's somebody that cares and loves you, and I never experienced that before. I dealt differently with the kids from that point forward. You know, I started, my interactions with them were, before, were more like, I need to put in my time so I looked like a good dad, and now I'm, uh, I'm sitting with it and I'm, I'm just loving it. Thanks for being good today. You're awesome, you're the best. Craig, my brother, uh, had been going to India uh, for a while now, and he had actually invited me. Eventually, I, I agreed to go, and so I went uh, with Craig and a team from Kensington to India. That experience just really turned me around. I saw the very face of Jesus in the children of India and the elderly people on the streets and and people that had nothing and yet had this joy. And what I really felt is God was saying, this is what life is really all about, it's people. Like, you gotta pour into people. You know, I want you, Jim, to help me uh, accomplish my work here, which is just to build community and just love people. My mind was, really? Can God actually use me to work with this mission in India as much as I've ignored him for for most of my life, I would say? And the answer turned out to be yes, because uh, I actually did end up working um, with the mission here in India as the director of uh, Impact India 360. We had a big hospital project that we've been working on for years. We started an uh, elderly home, people that are homeless. We're bringing them in and we'll feed them, have a place to live. We have, you know, a couple hundred orphans uh, in the greatest children's home. Are you guys ready? Who let the dogs out?
0: Who let the dogs
1: out? That's what blows me away, is when you see these kids smile, it's just huge. It's it's like they beam. Hey, everybody. Good, how are you? Now I'm teaching uh, a class out of Kensington. Uh, That's been an awesome experience, and if you would have told me that ten years ago, First of all, I would have laughed, and then I would just have just turn around and said, you're nuts, and probably never talk to you again, because that was so far removed from anybody that I was, who I cared, anything I cared about. And so to think that I'm doing that now, it just shows God's grace. Well, if I reflect on it, the one thing that stands out the most to me is that it's two different lives, and, and I'm two different people. There's a part of me that says, man, I wish I hadn't gone through that. But the reality of it is, where I am now, I don't regret it. When I had faith in myself, I was never free. As a matter of fact, I was the opposite. I was owned by everything that I thought I owned. When I turned to God, when I surrendered and and gave my life to Him and, and started to serve Him, there's freedom everywhere. There's freedom in not caring about stuff. There's freedom in not worrying about what people think about you. Success for me now is defined by How many people's lives I can help transform by doing the work of God? That's my success. My success is the people in India. Uh, Same thing here, when I'm either teaching a class or in my own life and my daughter's, am I impacting their perspective and their faith? Is their faith growing as a result of who I am in God? That's success.
0: that line in his story he's like can god really use somebody like me who's ignored him most of my life and what he said it turns out the answer is yes turns out the answer is yes i love that and he even said it's like two lives it's like one life i'm living facing backwards my past failures in this new life, I now have a renewed vision for what my life is all about. In fact, all the, all the standards were all changed. All the, the success marks of success all got shifted in that transition of identity. And Jim really just reveals in his story that just the last truth I have for you today. And I, you know, I'm driving on my way here this morning. I'm praying for you because I don't know who's going to be here. All I know is I want God to show up and do something awesome. And as I'm praying, it hits me. I'm like, I'm so grateful for this truth that failure is never final with God. Failure's never final with Him. I'm thankful for that in my own life, because gosh, my list of failures is so big, yet failure's never final with God. He continually restores. The greater the failure, the greater the forgiveness, the greater the failure, the greater the grace, the greater the failure, the greater the mercy that is given. Because we serve a God. If you want to know who God is, he's a God of second chances, and the amount of second chances you get is limitless, because there's nothing you can do that'll ever make him love you less. I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me, because there's some of you that are wondering, how do you get that change in identity? How do you switch from living your life, facing your past failures and being defined by them, to living new With a new vision you only do that through a relationship with jesus christ that's it that's the only thing i can offer you to make that transition and some of you this is your morning to accept jesus into your life you never have before and i want to give you a moment to do that and i want also pray for those of you who have a battle going on for your identity right now because you are defined by your past failures So if you're in that first group and today's your day to accept Jesus Christ with everybody's eyes closed and heads bowed, I just want to invite you to pray with me and make my words your words. There's nothing special about the words other than just the posture of your heart. And you can just repeat these words in the quietness of your mind to to God. He hears you and all you have to do is just say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I believe you died and rose again paying for my sins. Forgive me. Change my identity. Give me a mission for my life. Give me a vision for what you want me to do moving forward. And as much as I understand it, help me to live my life for you from here on out. And for those others of you that right now you're struggling with your identity because it's linked to a past failure, I just want to pray for you, Lord. You know everybody in this room right now, and you know the voice that they listen to in their head the loudest. And Lord, I pray right now that you would not allow that voice to be Satan's, the accuser, linking their failure to their identity. I pray that you would break that pattern, that way of thinking, and that you would give them a new identity this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give them a vision for what their life could be in the coming weeks, months, years. Lord, remind them in this moment that, yes, you can use anyone. Even if they're focused on their past, you can still reorient their identity to a future that you've designed and dreamed for them. And God, I pray for that to happen right now. I just pray for freedom. And I pray that you would take that voice and just quiet it and allow us to only hear your voice if that's us. God, thank you for the way that you pursue us in our failures, and you always will in the moment we turn back to you. You're right there to offer forgiveness and grace and a new future. I thank you for Peter's story, and I thank you for the story that you are telling, just like Jim's, and in this room right now, you're telling stories of your redemption. In your holy name, amen. Um, Over the next couple minutes, I just want this to become a place where we do business with God and so while the band plays the beginning of this next song I just want to encourage you to pray to spend time with God and if you're comfortable you can close your eyes um, you, you don't have to but I just want this to become a holy moment and then about a few minutes into this first song the Michael's going to invite you to stand and when he invites you to stand we just want to close out our service um, singing um, and just worshiping God and allowing our hearts to express how many of us feel in this room.